Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Today on Reset, it's the Friday News Roundup, where we break down some of the biggest local news stories of the week. And what a week it's been. CTO! CTU! It is day two of a teacher walkout at Chicago Public Schools. We certainly believe that we can get a deal done. We can get a deal done today. If, if there is a, a seriousness, a purpose, and a willingness on the other side, we can get a deal done today. The mayor has sort of highlighted um, the question about money. Um, for us, this is about so much more than just paying benefits. Chicago Police Board unanimously votes to fire Officer Robert Rialmo for the 2015 shooting that killed two people. Eddie Johnson says he worked a long day and stayed out late with friends for dinner. When someone noticed him behind the wheel slumped over, they called 911. Joining me to talk about those stories and more, WTTW host and political correspondent Paris Schutz, Daily Line managing editor and City Hall reporter Heather Sharon, and Better Government Association president and CEO David Grising. Heather, let's start off with the biggest story of the week, the teacher strike. Now, it's day two of the strike. Where do negotiations stand? We are still, it seems, mostly debating when to debate. Mayor Lightfoot said this morning that she wanted round-the-clock bargaining sessions while the union is scheduled to are probably on their way as we speak to City Hall for another big rally. Uh, So it has been most of the substantive debate has been over when they should debate. There was some progress, union leaders told us yesterday, on class sizes, but nothing firm. And there are a host of other issues to resolve. So I would be very surprised if school was in session Monday morning. Paris, quickly remind us, what is the the Chicago Teachers Union asking for? They're apparently okay with the salary, 16% raise over five years. What they're asking for is the conditions, which are not normally things that you can really strike over. They want want a cap on class sizes. They want a school nurse in every school, librarian in every school, more support staff for special needs kids. So those kinds of things. And what Mayor Lightfoot is accusing them of right now is a lack of urgency. She feels that they're not spending a lot of time at the bargaining table. Instead, they're out on the picket lines. The thing here is, you know, there's all this noise and campaigning. There's a team of 40 people in the teachers union that sit there with the team of bargaining people. James Franzek is the labor bargaining guy from the city. He's been doing it since the Daly administration. So they're having a normal, you know, labor negotiation but as Mayor all Lightfoot this noise has expressed happens. some frustration about that part of it that things aren't moving quickly in part because well, and, of how it's structured. And, and this, it, well, there's a forty, yeah, the bargaining team. It is. It, it's got to go through a lot of people, and then this teachers union has to go back and and vote with their uh, their delegates. And there's a million steps that have to happen. But you know, the teachers union says, look, our people have been there around the clock. Just because Jesse Sharkey and Stacey Davis Gates might pick up and leave and go to a picket doesn't mean that negotiation is stopping. And this argument the mayor has made about, hey, I I haven't seen an entire package from the union is a little bit disingenuous because there's no doubt about what the demands are from the union on the table. Uh, The mayor put a price tag on it. Well, let's listen to the mayor here. We have a clip of her. We can't bargain by ourselves. So what we need is for the union to come back to the table to bargain in good faith um, and spend the time actually getting a deal done face to face with us. Um, and not off to the side in a caucus. We need them to focus 
in the, the in the bargaining sessions on actually hammering out a deal and getting it done. Jump in here, Dave. That's just the way a negotiation happens. There's a lot of kind of go to the table, go caucus, come back to the table. And, and as Paris says, for the union leaders, they have to be out on the streets. They had thousands of people out there yesterday marching around City Hall, marching around CPS headquarters. A lot of this is about them building public support, right. which, by the way, they seem to be doing pretty well. The polling coming out saying the public is supporting the union right now. We'll see how that holds up over time. There were some numbers. Moody's, the financial service, put out some numbers mm-hmm. yesterday saying that the kind of the non-salary concessions that the union's asking for would cost CPS $800 million over three years, that they right now have a contingency budget of only about $300 million and cash on hand of only about $365 million. So if they concede what the union is asking for, CPS would need to raise additional money. And that's probably where the squeeze comes in addition to the salary offer the city has already made. Well, and Heather, just put this into context for us, because why while CPS is healthier than it has been before, there is a lot of debt Correct. that's is, still connected to it. It is a highly leveraged district, and it has been sort of pushed back from the brink of bankruptcy by about a billion dollars in new state money over the last two years. However, the district, like every other city agency, is facing a huge mountain of pension debt, as well as it's still borrowing money to make its payroll, you know, every two weeks, which is, you know, not best practices. Um, <laughs> the other thing that struck me about Moody's is that they said that as long as the strike was reasonably short, they would not move to change the the district's credit rating. And that is so crucial because if they get that rating rating lowered, the district would be on the hook for potentially millions of dollars of more in debt service payments. Well, let's listen to CTU President Jesse Sharkey talking about the strike last night. The mayor has sort of highlighted um, the question about money. Um, For us, this is about so much more than just paying benefits. Uh, This is about the conditions that we go into work in uh, in our schools every day. We can't afford to keep working in schools that, um, that, that don't do what we need them to do. David, can the city afford to let the strike go on for more than a couple of days? I think settling this urgently is really important for the city, as Heather indicated, if they were to drag on. Moody's has kind of sent a warning shot across the bow saying this school system really has been on the brink in the past. They were saved by this state bailout that Rahm Emanuel uh, negotiated, but they could very easily end up back on the brink if this goes on very long. So the city is very motivated to get this thing settled. Let's not forget, not only they got that state bailout, but there's $350 million a year in a new tax levied on Chicagoans directly to teacher pensions. And let's also consider the fact that Lightfoot is saying that these days missed will not be made up at the end of the year, which they were in 2012 during the strike. So whatever days missed now are lost. Uh, Ostensibly, that means that that, uh, teachers would lose out on that salary. So she's hoping to use that as a leverage. And then let's also put this in the grander political context. Teachers union went all in for Tony Preckwinkle for mayor. Tony Preckwinkle lost every single precinct except for two in the city to Lori Lightfoot. They want to exert themselves as a political force here. And the public is is on their side, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're against Lightfoot on this. This isn't like a zero-sum game. It seems like Lightfoot still has pretty favorable approval ratings 
and teachers have favorable approval ratings because parents like their teachers. And it used to be that the, the school system would worry about being paid on a daily basis for the students who show up in school. That's no longer the way that the revenue picture works. They get an allocation from the state. So in a way, that strengthens the mayor's bargaining position. She can wait this out a little mm-hmm. bit, but not very long. But Heather, I, I want to talk about <laughs> this political landscape we're in right now. You have Mayor Lightfoot and you have CTU, and in a lot of ways, they're speaking the same language. They're talking about equity in education, and yet here we are in the middle of a strike. Right. It's a very unusual strike in that if you ask Lori Lightfoot, do you agree with the union that there should be more counselors? Yes. More uh, social workers? Absolutely. More librarians? Yes. We are doing our best. But they fundamentally disagree on how those promises are kept. The union says we're not going back until we have those promises in writing in the contract, which would make those agreements legally enforceable. Like they could go to a judge and They didn't do this. They violate our contract levy penalties. And this is really, I think, part of Mayor Rahm Emanuel's legacy, who, of course, took office in 2011. And one of the first things he did was to claw back a 4% raise from the union that they had negotiated as part of their contract. And I think that that wounded the union deeply and has made them very distrustful of the city. And in some ways, is that Lori Lightfoot's fault? Certainly not. But that is the legacy that she has to deal with. Well, David, the Reverend Jesse Jackson joined the negotiating session last night. We've seen other high profile leaders. What does that tell us about the state of negotiations? The Jackson thing is kind of odd. I mean, nobody would expect Jesse Jackson to be able to come in and settle this issue. And he also, his statement when he came out was really kind of, it was not, hey, the city, you know, lining up with the teachers and blaming everything on the city was like, hey, I hope everybody can settle this. And it it does indicate that he recognizes Lori Lightfoot's popularity after the election. He may recognize the limitations she's facing in terms of trying to find new money. Um, It also indicates that that whatever the polling is saying, that that there's just as much support probably for the mayor as there is for the teachers right now. And it's interesting, Jesse Sharkey, the head of the union, he's looking at what Karen Lewis did when during Rahm Emanuel's first term, where she took the teachers out and she gained a lot of popularity, et cetera. He's accomplished that now. The real question is, can he get to a deal? And that's what we'll be watching over the next couple of days. It's also a very different political landscape in that you had 33 members of the city council back the union as opposed to the mayor with a resolution this week. Well, let's now turn to some news out of city council. Earlier this week, the 20-member Black Caucus threatened to hold up citywide sale of recreational cannabis over concerns about minority ownership. Let's take a listen. When we look at the fact that the black and brown community has been adversely affected by the cannabis industry, Jails have been filled up, people have been locked up, and now we are being locked out of benefiting from this particular ordinance. How do we look in this great city, allowing cannabis to be rolled out with 22 licenses, all owned by people who are not of color, coming out of the gate? 
That was Alderman Anthony Beal of the Ninth Ward speaking during Wednesday's city council meeting. Heather, how did this issue unfold? So Mayor Lori Lightfoot put forward the rules that would govern where cannabis dispensaries can locate once it's legal as of January 1st. And for a while, the most controversial part of that proposal was that those sales would be restricted or banned in much of downtown. She changed those borders slightly in response to criticism from Alderman. But the real flare-up was... um, centered around the fact that the first licenses will go to those companies who now operate the medical marijuana dispensaries. And by and large, those firms are owned by white men, which means that the people who will first benefit from the legalization of marijuana are not black and brown entrepreneurs whose communities really suffered under the weight of the drug war. And the city council's black caucus really objected to that. What was strange about this debate was that the city council has no authority to change the state law. So they were essentially threatening to hold up this zoning approval or these rules about where these dispensaries can go because they were angry about the state law that was passed months before to you know, much ballyhooing and, you know, you know, hosannas about how it was going to right the historical wrongs of the drug war. And a lot of the state lawmakers we spoke with, including Toy Hutchinson, who's the new weed czar, I think it's the best title ever, um, <laughs> said, you know, look, this was the law. This was what we came up with. And I'm a little bit she sounded a little bit at a loss for, you know, all of this controversy. So, you know, what was really going on? Maybe a little bit of a dog and pony show to say, hey, we're, you know, out here fighting for our communities. But I think in the long run, it signals aldermen are no longer unwilling to publicly buck the mayor. And on Wednesday, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is going to ask them to take some really tough decisions, and it is going to get much, much more tense in that chamber. Hmm. Well, we know that the uh, mayor originally wanted to keep marijuana out of the downtown area, Pierce. How did that turn out? Well, there was a lot of uh, pushback from people like 42nd Ward uh, Alderman Brendan Riley. That's the downtown area. He said, you know, if we want to get revenue out of this, why not put it in the places that are going to generate the most revenue? We want tourists to be able to walk out of their hotels and go buy weed if they're coming here to do that. And life would say, well, we got to keep this area family friendly. So there was a compromise. They both agree they want to keep it off of the Magnificent Mile, the real tourist area. So she she uh, allowed weed sales to happen in the River North area. That's kind of in the central business district, we'll say. And so so that's the compromise. But, it, you know, the, with, with the Black Caucus, they were unified uh, in this. And then they splintered. So Anthony Beale, you heard, there is a, is a big mayoral opponent. You know, he wants to derail the mayor at whatever turn he can. The chairman of the Black Caucus, Jason Irvin, dropped his opposition by saying, well, look, we get it. The 11 people that have licenses right now, they're not African-American. So uh, they're going to get another license. That's 22 licenses, not going to African-Americans. But the alternative here is we don't pass any ordinance and then pot shops can open wherever because like it or not, Weed is going to be legal in Illinois on January 1st. So now what he's saying is pushing another ordinance to ban marijuana sales in Chicago until July while they figure this whole thing out. I don't know if that's going to have any kind of traction uh, in city council. It seems to be the momentum is this stuff is going to be sold January 1st I'm seeing a vigorous shaking of heads no from your uh, panelist, Dave. I'm looking at this in the broader context of Mayor Lightfoot kind of making compromises after setting out her equity agenda. You know, she really, the idea of kind of 
getting the economic benefit of these dispensaries out to the neighborhoods is absolutely good. But when she does so, she needs to give up revenue that she desperately needs and that the state needs as well from taxing these sales. And she's doing this to the same thing with the casino, where she says she doesn't want a casino kind of within walking distance of the hotels, which is really where a lot of the right. economic impact of a casino would be. And she is being faced with the reality that she needs to kind of step away from that equity agenda sometimes and make decisions that actually will maximize revenues. And, and it would be a real problem if the dispensaries aren't open in Chicago on January 1st, because as we've seen, there's a lot of concern that th- there's going to be so much demand that those right. initial sales, you'd be giving up a lot of money if you aren't ready. You, you go to Evanston or something, and then people, oh, now you develop loyalty to some store somewhere else. And it's revenue yeah. the city's planning on. Well, as I understand it, there is only a minuscule amount of marijuana revenue going to be included in the budget that the mayor is set to propose on Wednesday. However, I'm not clear that a city council ordinance could change state law. I think there's an issue of preemption there. But it was clear that the Black Caucus felt the need to sort of make a stand on this issue. And I think that it will be something that we at the Daily Line will be watching very closely as to whether or not these promises of marijuana legalization, not just benefiting white-owned big corporations, whether it helps spur economic development in black and brown communities, I think is a critical issue, especially if you're an alderman, knowing you're going to have to face voters uh, not too far in the future. And on a statewide basis, there is a lot of concerns about the medical marijuana dispensaries and growers getting a kind of incumbency advantage as this uh, rolls out over time. This is one of the problems when you get to the end of the legislative session in May and these huge bills are passed in a matter of hours with nobody even really having a chance to read them, much less attend to the real details. We're seeing this with regard to video gambling, right. where the rollout is really uh, poor compared to nearby states, and, and Illinois may suffer huge consequences over time. Uh, the legislative process in this state needs to be fixed. People need to pass bills after hearings during the course of a legislative session, and not this kind of rush to the exits at the very end. At 11.59 p.m. Exactly. on the last day. Well, earlier this morning, Mayor Lightfoot announced that she's considering a tax hike, a significant one, for ride your companies. Heather, tell us about that. So the mayor wants to essentially triple the fees that you pay every time you get into an Uber and a Lyft, and she's doing it in two ways. One, if you are the only passenger in that Lyft or Uber, you're going to pay a new fee of $1.25, and that is designed to encourage you to take a, a shared ride, where like you know you pick up somebody who's a little bit further away on the way to your destination. Uh, the other, the other, the other change will be is that if you are if your trip is originating from the central business district or ending in the central business district, you will pay an additional fee on top of that. So it's designed to do a couple of things. One, it's designed to reduce congestion in the central business district, and it's it's designed to encourage people to get out of the habit of riding alone in a ride-hailing vehicle. Um, uh, that will generate, she says, about $40 million. Um $20 million of that she has already said she wants to spend to improve bus service on heavily traveled bus lines. And that includes like bus only lanes and that includes, you know, special like traffic signals for buses and that sort of thing. Another chunk of that money will be used to fund a comprehensive congestion study. And now that could lead to um, a London-style congestion fee that if you drive by yourself into the loop, you pay some additional fee. 
So that's coming down the pike. Well, in a statement, Uber said that the proposed tax hike would by far be, and I'll use their words here, quote, the highest ride-sharing fee in the country. Paris, lots of people use rideshare right. in, in well, the city. How are people going to react to this? Not, not only do lots of people use rideshare, lots of people lobby for rideshare in city government. <laughs> lots of people that used to work in city government, so they know the halls of power, and there's going to be intense lobbying. And don't forget that the CEO of Uber was in town opening up his big new uh, branch in Chicago in the old post office, so there's some goodwill there. And he said, like, don't do that. Let's do a whole congestion tax. Don't just tax rideshare. But what's wrong with uh, urging people to to carpool or to take uh, public transit? The thing is, okay, $40 million, well, there's $800 million of a budget deficit to go. Whereas, that, And as Heather's saying, $20 million of this $40 million is already pledged. So $820 million to go <laughs> in terms of figuring out how to plug this budget gap, which we're supposed to find out about in the next week. I think the whole thing about encouraging people to rideshare in the CBD is kind of window dressing on mm-hmm. what's really a big revenue move. The way people ride Ubers in the central business district, by and large, is people running between busy appointments, and they don't have time to stop at other places, et cetera. The other interesting thing about this is the uh, the increase in the in the charges to rides outside the central business district, out in the neighborhoods. And one of the benefits of Uber has been bringing uh, the ability to catch a ride out in neighborhoods that were not served well by the commercial taxi companies. And so the increase in that tax is going to have issues for people out in the neighborhoods who really have benefited from the expansion of Uber. So let's turn to this story we heard this week. Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson was found slumped over in his car Wednesday night when a passerby called 911. Paris, what do we know about this story? Well, he opened an investigation into the uh, incident himself because he says, quote, no police officer superintendent should be above reproach or we need to figure out what happened. What he says was that he was out. He pulled over at a stop sign because he was feeling dizzy. A bystander came by and saw him slumped over. Eventually, he was able to drive himself home. We we got some information from source in the police department that Johnson um, has had issues uh, changing medication for blood pressure. And he went to the doctor for exhaustion related to that. So that's all we know about that right now. And, and of course, you know, it's a stressful job. And um, Eddie Johnson's had issues with his kidney and and stuff like that. We wish Eddie Johnson good health and and, and hope that they get to the bottom of whatever happened. Well, and it seems like this was a very deliberate move to be transparent um, around this incident. David, your thoughts? Well, I think it was he was smart to head off what would have been uh, an outcry about, well, we should look into this and, you know, let's see what this investigation turns up. Given his prior health problems, it sounds like what he's saying is probably uh, going to check out. The question on the table is, why was he allowed to drive home after essentially passing out while stopping, fortunately stopping? Do other motorists, are they allowed to carry on and drive home. There was no, as far as we know, no breathalyzer uh, test was conducted. Uh, there, there's no indication that he would have been drinking heavily and that that impaired him. But it does seem odd that a, would another motorist, having been found behind the wheel of a stopped car in the middle of traffic, have been allowed to just proceed without a breathalyzer? So there are legitimate questions about the way cops on the scene responded to this particular incident. Now, I asked Mayor Laurie Lightfoot about whether it was appropriate that he was allowed to drive himself home after suffering this whatever happened. Um, and she pushed back about whether it was a serious medical incident and whether he was actually, you know, at any point behind the wheel, either asleep or passed out. 
So I think that's where, you know, we're going to be looking for some answers about the investigation. However, I think uh, if you ask most Chicago political reporters, and correct me if I'm wrong, most of us are somewhat surprised Eddie Johnson is still the police chief. Um, He was, of course, put in place by Rahm Emanuel after the Laquan McDonald scandal toppled Gary McCarthy. Rahm Emanuel did so over the objections of the Chicago Police Board, which, of course, was led at the time by Lori Lightfoot. And we've all consistently asked her at her weekly Accountability Tuesday police-focused news conferences, are you going to keep Eddie Johnson for the long haul? And one would think that if she was looking to make a change, this might provide at least an opportunity. Well, sticking with CPD, the Chicago Police Board, which decides on the most serious cases of police misconduct, voted last night to fire Officer Robert Rialmo for 2015 on-duty shooting um, that left two people dead. Paris, just remind us briefly. Well, this happened um, in the aftermath of the Laquan McDonald shooting when the city was really on edge over all this. And Rialmo shot uh, Quintonio Legrier, a, a guy who had a baseball bat. This was a domestic disturbance between him and his father. He runs out. Rialmo shoots him, but also shoots Betty Jones, the downstairs neighbor, who had nothing to do with anything. She just came out to to check on what was happening. It was tragic. She was just an innocent bystander who lost her life into this. And COPA, the the Civilian Police Review Board, found Rialmo shooting unjustified and said that he should be fired. Eddie Johnson disagreed with that, said it was justified. So what happens in that case is the police board, which decides this thing, well, they can maneuver to hear the case. And they did, and they determined seven to nothing that Rialmo should be fired because the shooting was unjustified, and now the FOP will probably go to court to appeal that. David, surprised by this outcome? Not really. Uh, In the aftermath of Jason Van Dyke, police on the beat have much less latitude uh, in which to operate. And some of the tactical mistakes that it appears that Rialmo made, um, you know, his story didn't really wasn't consistent. There were questions about whether he should have taken steps back instead of standing his ground using his his revolver. And and also um, that if he had moved, say, to the side and he might have been able to uh, shoot LeGreer without shooting uh, Betty Jones. And so it's easy for us, obviously, you know, in, in the quiet of our offices to read about this and think he should have done something different. Obviously, FOP and other cops with experience will say in that moment, it's understandable he did so. But this has been very carefully studied. And there are really quite significant questions about how he, he conducted himself. And so I'm not surprised that the decision was taken to fire him. Well, another police story, Inspector General Joseph Ferguson this week reported that CPD detectives conducted a, quote, inc- incompetent and incomplete investigation into the suspicion death of an officer. Heather, just remind us of the circumstances here. So this is a really, really strange story out of uh, my old stomping grounds in Norwood Park. Uh, (laughs) A sergeant was off duty and was out at one of the local watering holes with his wife. He got into an argument with his wife. He went back to the home. By the time she got home, she realized she had been locked out and was able to wake up one of her kids to let her in. And when she got into the house, she says she found her husband dead of a gunshot wound to the head, a self-inflicted wound. She called the police, but when the police got there, they did not follow protocol, according to the inspector general's report. And basically, the lead um, investigator said, yep, definitely a suicide. Let's call the medical examiner. Let's throw away the mattress. Let's, you know, sort of wrap this up. And tragically, his wife um, died uh, several months later by, you know, sort of an overdose of pills in her house. So it's really unclear sort of what all happened. But the inspector general lays out a, a somewhat damning account of how the 
normal procedures were not followed in this case. Um, and I think raises additional questions. I don't know how many times I've talked about this on this on the morning shift when the morning shift existed, uh, that code of silence, that blue line protecting other officers, because his wife was also an officer as well. Well, just really quickly as we wrap up here, put this into a larger context. Just I want your, your thoughts briefly, considering this most recent report from the IG's office and the report that was released um, about a week ago that looked at the circumstances around the investigation of the Laquan McDonald shooting. Where are we on police accountability in Chicago right now? Paris? Well, there's the federal consent decree uh, where a federal monitor is is in there making sure these changes happen. There's the uh, Fraternal Order of Police that wants to fight that stuff. They don't have a labor contract, like much like the teachers, so they're fighting over that. And now the inspector general does have leeway to release of these very, very big uh, reports that involve police misconduct, possibly involve shootings. You know, there's another one that possibly is going to come down the pipeline that, that relates to uh, David Kochman, um, who had died at the hands of a, of a relative of, of former Mayor Daley. So there's going to be more transparency, and the FOP is going to continue to fight it. That's where we're at. Going back to something that Heather said earlier about the kind of the watch to Eddie Johnson as to whether Lori Lightfoot is going to remove him. As a candidate, and when she was on the police board, she was very, very critical of the Chicago Police Department under Eddie Johnson. People thought she might make a move on him very early. She seems to have somehow gained some sort of confidence in him over the course of a summer that was really very difficult, including the Labor Day weekend, when he did not reinforce, as as would be, would have been typical. And there was a serious problem over the Labor Day weekend. And so the real question there was when these IG reports come out, and they point out that in this particular instance where mm. the mattress was thrown away, they didn't right. test her for residue on her fingers. Might she possibly have been the person who killed this officer? And so uh, it just speaks to discipline on this police force. Yes, the consent to will help address some of this, but is there a problem with leadership at the top of CPD? And I think that's the question. Because if Lori Lightfoot is going to make a move on Eddie Johnson, now would be the time to do it. You don't wait to the spring when you have to be right. putting your plans in place for the summer, which is when all the homicide activity starts to increase. You make your move in the fall so that a new chief can come in and put in place plans for the summer. Heather, I'll give you the last word here. Well, I wonder if part of it isn't the fact that we have this huge budget deficit, which I can't emphasize enough how it is sucking up all of the oxygen at City Hall. There was a big push to speed up the minimum wage increase to 15 by 2021. That has stalled. And so much of the attention right now is on sort of how we're going to get out of that budget deficit. Part of... I imagine what Mayor Lightfoot is thinking is, I have a full plate. There's a teacher strike going on right now. I got this huge, massive budget deficit. Maybe now is not the time to bring in new leadership to the police department. But that is just somewhat less than wild speculation. That's Daily Line Managing (laughs) Editor at City Hall reporter Heather Sharon. Also with us, Better Government Association President and CEO David Greising and WTTW host and political correspondent Paris Schutz. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. And that's it for today's Reset. Keep in touch with us via Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset. And watch this space for a Sunday Reset. We've got a great conversation with Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, Lonnie Bunch III. I'm Jen White. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Thank you.